So we're in the home stretch of our 21-day fast. If you're new or visiting with us, this is something that we do as a church family every year. And it has increasingly become the most significant time that we have as a church family. Um, It's been rich this time. I've been so helped. And I've learned so much about myself. And it's not all that great. Um, I have a lot of pride still. And my heart is still calloused in ways that grieves me. And I, I think grieves God. And my temper is still short. And I, I always... I don't always speak in love and kindness, but I'm also aware that I'm more controlled by my appetites than I really care to be. But I've also learned a lot about God. And I've learned that for every need and want that I have, he is the answer. And I've learned that when I don't have it all together, he does. And I've learned that it's his grace that allows me to take another step and to live another day. I've learned that he really likes it when we seek him. And I've learned that he is our strength when we are weak. That his grace is sufficient for us when we don't have our act all together. I've learned that he longs for us to return to him. And he wants us to find forgiveness and relationship and strength and courage. There's so much more to learn about God in a fast than we learn about ourselves. Thank God, right? It's so good that we don't just get left with who we are and where we lack. We always get to see who he is and how he is sufficient. Last year, uh, during our fast, James gave us an instruction on the very first day, and he asked us to take Isaiah 58 and to read it and to figure out what type of fast that God desires of us. You've had a whole year, so you should have read it by now. I hope that you read it during the fast last year, but if you didn't, I hope that you'll read it in the next three days to hear God. Let's read it, Isaiah 58 and verse one. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not, they say. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, God's saying to them now, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Verse four, behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with the wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? 
Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Would you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness and to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and to not hide yourself from your own flesh? Have we been doing it all wrong? Has all of this suffering and and doing without food and starving ourselves and going without the, the conveniences we put aside, has that been for naught? Isaiah says that God's people have deteriorated into religious observation, ordinance, and they've done it for the wrong reason with the wrong motive. They looked sincere, certainly. They had a lot of outside uh, reverence for God, even giving up things that mattered. They looked the part, but their piety was nothing but a sleek veneer covering an ugly condition. They wanted to use God. They were unwilling to be used by him. Pastor Ray Ortland writes, They sincerely believed they could obligate and pressure God. And when their fasting and praying and self-deprivation didn't leverage cooperation out of God, they resented him. What poisoned their souls toward God was not sins like thievery and murder. What poisoned their souls was their religion. That hurts. Man is good at religious duty. Not as good at intimate relationship. In verse two, we see exactly where they went wrong. Verse two, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. Those two little words, one syllable each, four little letters, explains the root cause of their sin. As if. They were faking it. They were posers. They were role-playing. They were performing... Kabuki theater. They were acting as if they were righteous when in fact they were not. And they were acting as if they weren't that rebellious when they really were. Fasting was supposed to make them more like God, but all they did was seek their own pleasure, oppress their own workers, and fight and bicker with each other. They were messed up.
And this is not the only time that God has called them out for this kind of selfish behavior, this kind of flawed approach to fasting. In Zechariah chapter 7, verse 5, just a couple of years after the prophecy that we read about two weeks ago around Daniel, in Daniel 10, 11, and 12, just a few years beyond that, Zechariah had this word from the Lord for the people of God. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, these are good people, good church-going folks, the people, the, the priests, the, the good, good ones, not all the rebellious ones, not all the hard-hearted ones, not all the, not all the ones that have gone to idol worship. These are the good people. Say to them, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, which was in accordance with Moses' law, when you did those things, these 70 years, which was the time of their exile in Babylon, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? I think this one stings even more because it highlights our propensity to live compartmentalized lives. It highlights the fact that we want to put faith in a certain silo but make sure that it doesn't touch the other silos of our life. We, we want to allow God into places that don't cost us too much, but we keep him far from things that we don't want challenged. No, that's, that's not yours, God. That, that's not where I put you. Uh, you're supposed to be over here. Well, what are you doing over there? That, that's mine. That's, that's not yours. But God doesn't work that way. He is after our whole heart the whole time. He doesn't do silos. He doesn't stay in the compartment you place him in. He doesn't allow for you to box him in, to limit him. He chooses to sit on the throne of our lives. Ms. Hermania said a few weeks ago in our prayer time how the Lord was showing her that oftentimes we just don't let God into areas in our lives and our hearts and not necessarily that we're sinning in that place. Not necessarily that, that we've somehow, that's a hidden secret sin, but simply because we didn't let him in that place, it's still sin. He's a God that wants our whole life, our whole heart, the whole time. He doesn't allow us to bracket off our relationship with him from the other areas of our life where we include him in on things like the occasional fast, but we exclude him from our ongoing feast. You fasted for me? And when you eat and drink, are you doing that for yourself? So on two different occasions now, by two different spokesmen, two different prophets, God has denounced his people for fasting as if they were righteous when they were not, and for doing it for themselves and not for him. 
I think James was really onto something last year. <laughs> Good job, James. Good job. We need to understand that we are just as prone to these tendencies as they were. We are just as likely to do things that are not pleasing to God all the while we think we look the part, we're playing the part, we must be pleasing God. And I can almost hear him say to the church universal, when you fast, are you fasting for me? We have to remember that the discomfort, the hunger that we feel when we fast, that's not the major point of the fast. It, it serves a purpose. It helps us see, as I mentioned at the beginning, all the things that are wrong in us and all the things that are right in God. It helps us set aside things that are good. Food is good uh, most of the time. Uh, social media is good. Well, uh, never mind. That wasn't true. Uh, those certain things that we have set aside, entertainment, other things that are normal parts of a routine, when we set those things aside, we're setting aside good things, as Peter said earlier, in order to get in on something better. But that's not the only purpose of the fast. Fasting is only of value if it brings us into a deeper intimacy with Jesus, which will also radically change the relationships we have with others. Because real spirituality that aligns us vertically with God will also direct us horizontally out to others. You don't get one without the other. God requires that we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and is equally important that we love our neighbor as ourself. You don't get to pick one and ignore the other. True fasting brings us to a place of concern, true spiritual concern for other people, where we work to see people released from wickedness and set free from oppression. The kind of fasting that God likes is the kind that has radical hospitality associated with it. Where we share our bread, what God has given us, give us this day our daily bread. We share that which he gave to us with those that do not have. It's radical hospitality, inviting others in. Those that are naked, we cover them. Those that are homeless, we give them shelter. We don't turn our backs and hide from our own flesh and blood. That's what God says is a true fast in his eyes. You know, when I look at this list in Isaiah 58 that we just read, the fast that I choose is to loose the bonds of wickedness, verse six, and undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and to not hide yourself from your own flesh? One translation says flesh and blood. When I, when I look at that list, I'm tempted to see it only through the lens of social justice, the lens of 
social justice, where our priority becomes eliminating poverty, fighting discrimination, reconciling racial division, and fighting injustice. I do believe that the church has a huge responsibility to stand for what is right, to stand against that which is wrong, and more importantly, to stand with those who are oppressed. We have that responsibility. God not only gave us the great commission to go and preach the gospel, he also gave us the great commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. Those, as I said earlier, are not disconnected. So we have a responsibility to stand against those oppressive things in our society as a whole and and to really stand with those who are downtrodden. But I need to add this piece to it because I think that if you only go after social justice to the exclusion of understanding what God must and only he can do, then we will get out further on the limb than it can bear. And you know what happens when you get out on a limb and you're climbing a tree? Well, most of us don't anymore, but your kids do. If you get out too far, it's gonna break or it's gonna bend so far that you fall off. And I don't wanna get out beyond where God wants me to be. And so when I think about social justice, I have to put it in context of what God himself is going to do. I would add that we need to remember these things God calls us to do, the, the, the loosening of the straps and, the, and undoing the straps and loosening the bonds. We need to do that with respect to a personal relationship and not just about fighting against a cause. It needs to be relational and not just organizational. God is calling us to not just be against something, but to be for somebody. God is calling us not just to be against poverty, but to be for the person who is poor. God is calling us not to just be against hunger, but to be for those who are hungry. God is calling us not just to be against oppression, but to be for, to stand with the oppressed. I've said this before, but I really think it bears repeating. When Isaiah said, undo the straps in these verses, undo the straps of the yoke, it paints, I think, a really good picture for what we are to be doing in harmony with what Jesus himself does. It paints the picture that if I just go about fighting everything and not working in harmony with him, I'm not gonna have the results that I wanna have I'm I'm called to undo the straps, to loosen the bonds, but it's going to take Jesus and his kingdom to make every wrong right. It's going to take what only Jesus can do to heal every broken heart. It's going to take only his kingdom that can wipe away every tear. Jesus is the only one who fully embodies all of these characteristics. He's always the only one. Even when he calls us to be a certain way, like from the Sermon on the Mount, do you know that we're never gonna fully do that apart from him? 
We, we are going to be weak and feeble in our best attempts. It takes Jesus for any of this stuff to get done. So when Jesus fully embodies all of these things, it is he and he alone who can loosen fully the bonds. It's he and he alone who can fully undo the straps and release the oppressed and break the yoke. It's Jesus and Jesus alone who can truly feed to satisfaction the hungry and care for the homeless and cover the naked and not hide from his own flesh and blood. We have a part to play, but don't think we can do it without Jesus. Don't think that this is gonna get reconciled in our own efforts, in our attempts, our feeble, weak, little attempts to try to do something. Oh, we are called to be ministers of reconciliation. Yes, indeed. But remember, who is the great reconciler? And we are only his representatives we don't replace him. We, as his people, as his church, as his body, as his children, are truly called to be ambassadors of this message of God's reconciliation. And we know that Paul told the Corinthians that, that we're ambassadors of reconciliation, that we're called to undo the straps, if you will. Can you imagine a yoke placed on someone on an animal, think about that. And I don't have a picture of it, but think about the, the, the yoke, the heavy burden of it. And this heavy burden is strapped down onto the animal so that it doesn't slip off. Now, it would be unbearable for the animal if you tried to remove that yoke and the straps were still tied. It takes untying the straps. It takes loosening those bonds in order for that yoke to be removed. Here's my, here's my asser assertion. I believe God's called us to loosen the straps so that he can break the yoke. I believe God has called us to untie those things that are keeping it in place in order for him to relieve them of their oppression. I want to work in harmony with him, not to the exclusion of him. Jesus is the only one that can do all of this. But our part is important because he invites us into it. And here's what I think our part really is. It's the relational intensity that's required to love your neighbors. I, I say that because <laughs> it's going to mean relational intensity for you to be obedient to God's Great commandment. To love your neighbors yourself? Are you kidding me? No. You're going to require intensity to carry that out in the way that God would want you to. But if you do, if you're not lured into just fighting against the cause, protesting when it's time, posting something on Facebook, if you're not just eliminated down to that kind of thing, but you actually get in there and love you're beginning to untie the straps, loosen the bonds, so that God can do something phenomenal. In our responsibility of loosening and untying, there are two things I want you to remember. Two things. First, a lot of people will agree that loosening bonds of wickedness and untying the straps should be done. 
there would probably be universal agreement about that in the church at large. Everybody agrees that should happen. But it takes more than agreement to get anything done. It requires ownership on your part, not just agreement. You see, if you don't buy in, you won't do it. You won't do it. You'll agree with it, but it won't have you. It won't motivate you. It won't compel you the way that it needs to. I can agree with my wife that we need to eat healthier when we get to eat again. I can agree with her on that. She can, she can come and present why we should and what the purpose of it is. But if I have no ownership in that choice, you'll find me eating burgers and chips and ice cream every chance I get. Because I agree we ought to eat healthier, but I have no ownership in the process. Well, I bet we would have universal agreement that small groups are a good idea in our church. That really, we should get together and commune with God and with one another and even be a part of his mission. That seems like a really good idea. But just because you agree doesn't mean that it gets done. If we didn't have committed couples and singles who were willing to sacrifice and open their homes and prepare food and to pray and intercede for those that might come and regularly allow people to come in and invade their space, if we didn't have group leaders that were actually owned the process and the vision, it wouldn't get done. We might all agree it's a good idea, but it requires ownership for it to get done. You can agree with someone you think should, with someone that something should be done, but only if you have ownership will you be a part of the solution. Now, I don't believe that we should own everything. I don't believe that everyone in this room or everyone in the church universal should own every single thing. But you better own something. Because if all you're doing is agreeing that it needs to get done, you're not a part of the solution. You may be a part of the problem. What has God given you to own? What person has God called you to love intentionally with radical hospitality? If we don't own it, who will? And when God says these are the things that need to be done, he's not just asking for agreement. He's asking for somebody to believe in it enough to do it, to own it, to let it own them. So that's the first thing I want you to see. It won't get done if you don't own it. You can agree with it. You can agree with God's word. I agree with that, Lord. Thank you for that. Great. What are you going to do about it? It's why we're instructed not just to be hearers of the word only, but doers of the word. So that's the first thing. The secondly, second thing that I want to just say is that we need to be careful not to be overwhelmed by all of the injustice and oppression that's out there. Um, I could spend the rest of the day talking about what's wrong with our culture and our society and our nation. I could talk to you a lot about what's wrong right here in Lawrenceville, 
Gwinnett County. We can all, we can pile on. <laughs> we can make a really big gripe fest. All that's wrong, all the injustices, all the oppression. Oh my goodness, Lord, you better come back and rescue us because it's just all going to hell in a handbasket. We can talk those ways. But that's not what God's called us to do. He's called us to live in hope that one person at a time, his kingdom is advancing. We know this promise. And it's spoken in the Old Testament, and I love it. It says, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And that didn't have an addendum or a footnote to it, except for America in the year 2020. Yeah, don't know that it'll advance that year. We might lose some ground then. No, God's kingdom is advancing, and it will not be stopped. So why are we sitting around complaining about all the things that are wrong when his kingdom is growing every single day? Our faith needs to be more to us than griping about all the injustices and oppression we see. It's horrible, and we're called to do something about it. But don't live there. Live in him. Live with your vision cast higher. Sorry, got excited there. We have to remember that the small stuff really does matter to God. Hear me. This is the second thing. The small beginnings really matter. The kingdom of God is like a small pinch of yeast, Jesus said. Just a, a small bit of yeast that gets worked in to the whole lump of dough. I'm not a baker. I don't know how that works. But neither do you. You know it does, but how does that work? It's a mystery. How do it do? I don't know. That's what the kingdom of God is like, just a small pinch of something like yeast, and it starts working in through the whole lump of dough, and next thing you know, it's rising, and you can bake it, and oh, how I'd love to have a piece of bread right now. <laughs> getting faint okay that's what the kingdom of God is like small but it grows the kingdom of God Jesus said is like the smallest of seeds that are out there it's a mustard seed it's it was common in Palestine where they were it's not something we may see a whole lot but it's like a mustard seed which he said was the smallest of seeds yet grows to be the strongest of bushes they called it a tree, and that's because they, they don't have trees like we do up there. But it was such an enormous kind of shrub bush that Jesus said that it gave shade to people that wanted to come and get it, and protection, and housing to birds of the air. That's what the kingdom of God is like, the smallest of seed that grows enormously big. It's also why Zechariah was told by God to not despise the day of small beginnings, for God rejoices to start something. He rejoices in your meager little small step towards somebody to get in there as you're loosening their bonds and untying their straps. And then he gets involved and that yoke gets lifted off of their neck and broken into pieces. I've seen it happen. 
I've watched it with some of you. I've watched it in your lives where the yoke was so burdensome to you, but as people loved you and intentionally engaged you and undid the straps and loosened the bonds, God began to do something dramatic and that little small beginning was not to be despised because now you're free. I'm free. I've seen it happen to me. Don't despise small beginnings. The smallest of human kindness is critical. Everybody you touch, every person you love, every life you serve in some small way, it matters. And God doesn't waste it. He uses it. When you're listening to someone's story or, or sharing a meal with someone that you've invited into your home or where you're loving in some practical way that neighbor down the street or that quiet kid in your class or that coworker close to your cubicle or that mom and her kids that seem frazzled at the park or that person that you don't know why and you don't know how, but God put them in your path. Are you going to own this? Are you going to agree that somebody needs to love them? Or are you going to start loving and are you going to despise the small beginnings or are you just going to start undoing every strap you can? You do the little lifting. Let him do the big lifting. All of it is a part of God's mission of undoing the straps and loosening the bonds. And it's what we're called to do while we're here. We have purpose in his kingdom message. It's what we're called to do as we pursue a vertical relationship with him. We've got to also move horizontally towards them. Well, let me read for you what God promises if we do these things. And I'm going to read to you out of the message, which I realize is not a true translation. It's kind of a, a transliteration, I guess. But I love the way that Eugene Peterson captures the essence of God's promise if we would do these things. Isaiah 58, 8 through 12 from the message. Do this and the lights will turn on. <laughs> and your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. And then you will pray, God will answer. You'll call out for help and I'll say, here I am. And if you get rid of unfair practices and quit blaming victims and quit gossiping about other people's sins, if you are generous with the hungry and start giving yourselves to the down and out, your lives will begin to glow in the darkness and your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight. I will always show you where to go. And I'll give you a full life in the emptiest of places, firm muscles and strong bones. You'll be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. You'll use the old rubble of past lives to build anew. Rebuild the foundations from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything. Restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate. 
make the community livable again. Sounds good, doesn't it? I want those things in my life. I want people to know us as a community that because of his spirit can fix anything. (laughs) I want them to see that we can take old, charred, burned over stones that once were foundational and that God, by his strength and grace, can help us restore those old stones. Use them again. Listen, our whole church is full of people like that. I'm the chief. Usable one time. Discarded because of my own sin and rebellion at a later time. And then God used me again. He'll use you again too. Your old stones matter. The old ruins can be rebuilt. We can see the breach repaired. We can see the bridge built again. If we will do our part of undoing the straps and loosening the bonds, God will get involved and do something that only God can do. So what kind of fasting have you been doing? I know, me too. It's been more about me than it really has been about him. But that's okay. God's gracious, merciful. That's why he gave us the message today. What kind of fasting do you want to do? What kind of fasting do you want him to lead you into? Is it just where we look the part, put on the sackcloth, cover ourselves with ashes? Or is it the one that Jesus described where they can't tell you're fasting because you're loving so intentionally that they're like, wow, look at that. Has this fast only been about you getting from God what you wanted? Or instead, is it about you wanting what God wants? Inviting him into every compartment of your life. Have you been more prone to the cause of injustice when you've shirked the responsibility of loving your neighbor? We have to do one, but we can't do it at the exclusion of the other. It takes both. And are you undoing straps and loosening bonds where you live? Are you owning that? Are you just agreeing it should be happening? And do you own all of these things in your life beyond agreement? And are you despising the day of small beginnings like, oh, I don't know that it matters much. I don't have much to give. Remember, God starts with the small. You're just a little seed insignificant that can grow. You're just a little pinch of yeast that can be kneaded into the whole lump of dough. Let's be those that the Spirit of God does something in so that we can fix anything by His Spirit. So we can restore old ruins and rebuild and renovate and make community livable again. Amen. Let's stand. Oh, Lord, we just thank you, God, for the way 
you've been speaking to us and stirring us. We really don't want to play a game that looks good. We don't want to do kabuki theater where we look the part, but we're far from it. People look at us, we want them to see genuine faith, real love. Holy Spirit being poured into our lives and working through us. We want to see your purposes go forth from our midst and in our midst. But Lord, we need you to do all of that because we just are not very good at it on our own. I pray for us as a community. Lord, this city right here in Lawrenceville, in Gwinnett County, in the larger metro area of Atlanta, they need people like this who will not just agree that things need to be done, but they'll actually own it. They'll get serious about what God has called them to and give themselves fully to it, not just playing a game or fulfilling a role, but picking up their cross and denying themselves and following you. Lord, make us ambassadors of your reconciliation to our neighbors, coworkers, our classmates, the people that we come in contact with every day. Lord, don't let us have a day go by without us becoming aware that we should love intentionally. We should undo some straps. We should loosen some bonds. We should look for the power of God to be realized and revealed in our midst, in that person's life. Let us be about that business, not our own. Not siloing you into areas where you don't get to touch all of us. We surrender all of our lives. Our hearts are open spaces, God. Do whatever you want to do. Change us. Make us, mold us. Even break us if it's necessary. Let us accomplish the will of God. In Jesus' name.